You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and before I begin, I would like to ask you a favor. Please make sure to follow or subscribe to this channel, and please rate this episode after you've listened to it. I would appreciate that a lot. Now, let's get down to business. I'm joined on today's storytelling journey by media consultant and strategist, Lee Spikerman. Speakerman. Sorry about that, Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lee is president of Speakerman Media LLC, a media strategy consulting and production firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. Lee provides confidential counsel to officials at the highest levels of our government. Lee, I'm excited to have you here as a guest on Stories from Real Life. Well, it's a joy to be with you, Melvin. Thank you. And yeah, my last name, uh, it's phonetically correct, but has some extra letters in it. So people have to be careful to spell it. But it is uh, it is pronounced like uh, Speakerman, even though it's not uh, spelled the way people usually expect that to be spelled. I actually practiced it and I still messed it up. <laughs> so I apologize for that. So Lee has been a frequent Fox New- a frequent guest on Fox News Channel and Fox Business Network and has appeared on NPR and Sirius XM. He is an interesting presence on social media because he's a conservative on many social and fiscal issues, but is known for his unorthodox, pro-American and anti-racist views. In the political arena, Lee, you were a spokesman for former Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush. And you previously worked for Newt Gingrich. Your Republican roots go back to your days as the youngest staffer on former Texas Governor John Connolly's 1980 presidential campaign. But despite those long GOP roots, when was the last time you were called a rhino and asked why you were promoting a Marxist idea like anti-racism? <laughs> Well, um, I, I think uh, when you look at what what Abraham Lincoln, uh, the foundation that he laid not only for the Republican Party, but for our country, uh, I think a lot of people might be surprised. They know, obviously, he was anti-slavery, uh, but he also believed that the federal government should be active in improving people's lives. And it should, uh, you know, he said it should uh, lift burdens and, and do things for the community that individuals cannot do or cannot do as well for themselves. Uh, some people would call that uh, socialism or leftism, but those are the a paraphrase of the words of Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican elected president in our country. So when you look at that and you look at what you're hearing from a lot of Republicans today, unfortunately, it makes you wonder who the rhinos really are because they are not adhering to the legacy of Lincoln um, and they are not uh, pushing and, and working uh assiduously for unity in this country and problem solving, which is something that Abraham Lincoln also believed in and and certainly uh, did with uh, great success uh, during his political life. Uh, So uh, I I think a lot of changes need to occur in the Republican Party, and it's unfortunate uh, that, uh, that people are so hung up on labels 
and party labels, and they're so tribal about partisanship uh, that they're letting that stand in the way not only of success for our country, but just simple human decency uh, and just basic common sense and practicality. So over the last few years, a lot of people like me um, have left the Republican Party and others chose to stay. But um, despite some large philosophical differences, we'll call them, with the leadership within the party, why did you decide to become an independent? Well, simply because um, we and it's true in both parties, but I've been aligned with the Republican Party ever since I could vote, ever since I was basically a a kid or a little bit older than a kid. Uh, But we have Republicans, unfortunately, and and those that are in power, most of those that you're seeing on on appear on Fox News um, that are basically uh, you know, continuously uh, spewing complete malarkey, to use uh, Joe Biden's uh, term, uh, just uh, ridiculous. They, they're uh, perpetuating myths when it comes to economic policy, when it comes to the, what causes inflation. Um, our trade policies only, I mean, that's one thing that Trump succeeded in doing is finally changing most Republicans uh, thinking or at least significantly changing it on the, on the trade issue. People used to believe, hey, if you can buy stuff cheaper overseas, it doesn't matter if you're buying it from some country that wants to do us in or use our money to build up uh, defenses to uh, to threaten us and our allies and, and uh, to be a malign force around the world uh, or to mistreat its own people. It doesn't matter if we can get it cheaper. Well, that's the marketplace at work. Uh, and that was Republican doctrine. Uh, and we, the Republican Party still adheres to the lunacy uh, that government spending and government debt cause inflation. Now, there are reasons to control government spending. Uh, the reason should be, uh, is this a logical thing to spend money on? Is it going to have a good return on investment as a public policy? Is it going to save lives or appreciably make a lot of lives better? Those should be the uh, the gates for what we spend in government, not the fear that uh, government spending or debt or deficits cause inflation, because they simply don't. If you look throughout history, there is no correlation between government spending, growth in debt, and inflation. And people just conveniently overlook, unfortunately, a lot of them probably don't even remember or know that President Reagan tripled our national debt. He tripled it. And we had 30 plus years of little or no inflation after that. And we most of that time we had a very robust economy. So there's just no correlation there. But you keep hearing that and you keep people hearing people talking about the Biden inflation. When the inflation kicked off six months after Joe Biden was inaugurated, none of his or very little of his spending was even in the economy. But you know what was in the economy at that time? Trillions of dollars that President Trump and the Republican Congress uh, had approved and had enacted. Uh, those trillions of dollars were in the economy. So if government spending and increases in the debt cause inflation, frankly, you would call this spike in inflation we had after the pandemic the Trump inflation, not the Biden inflation. Because the irony is, as 
more and more of President Biden's expenditures made their way into the economy. Inflation continued to go down. And in the most recent report or over uh, 2023, inflation uh, at the end of that year was one point lower than it was uh, the year uh, that was Reagan's final year in office. One point lower it was 3.4 percent. It was uh, most recently uh, it was 4.4 percent when Reagan left office and everybody thought that was great. Uh, so it's, it's just the, the dishonesty, the lack of rigor in thinking, uh, the ruling out of or simply uh, just reflexively uh, demonizing any idea that comes from the Democrats and doesn't adhere to uh, warped Republican orthodoxy. Uh, that's why I became an, an independent. And uh, long answer to a short question, but those just are some of the things specifically uh, that have led me to do that. And finally, the big one is the racial issues. Too many white Republicans are completely in denial about American racial reality. And uh, that, you know, that alone would be a reason uh, to part ways with a political party. All right. Can you in your own words, make a conservative case for anti-racism? Well, the first thing I would say is right now we're in a, not in a hot war, but certainly a cold war or at least in an adversarial relationship with China. It has four times our population and we're in no position to uh, let anybody live and work beneath their potential. And we have millions of black people in this country that are far more capable, that can do great things, but are in situations that are the legacy of hundreds of years of slavery, of abject discrimination, oppression. Many of the structures and barriers, many of the attitudes that were, that were, um, put in place and that were fomented over those hundreds of years of black oppression remain in place. And uh, we as a country cannot continue to allow that happen. It is beneath our standard as a country. We cannot be a great country when we have millions of our fellow citizens, our brothers and sisters uh, below potential because we're not enacting the policies, taking the actions. We're not adopting the attitudes uh, that these are our fellow Americans and that it is not a victim mentality when you have black people that grow up in uh poverty in the inner city and have little access to jobs, are getting poor educations. This is a result of housing patterns that were deliberately laid out by the white power structure uh, over previous decades. It didn't just go away because the Civil Rights Act was enacted in 1964, or the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, and uh, so we are impairing our ability to keep freedom strong in the world, to lead the free world, to keep at bay China and other nefarious countries, Iran, Venezuela, Russia, certainly. We're impairing our ability to do that by not allowing all of our citizens 
to reach their potential. Uh, and that's in a nutshell, you know, the, I guess you would say the conservative case for being not just uh, against racism, not just saying, gee, I'm not a bigot, but actively working for black American advancement in this country, actively working to enable more black people uh, to not only survive, but to thrive and to make it into the upper reaches of our society. Uh, that should be considered a priority. And that's what's going to make our country stronger. And most of the problems that we have in terms of crime, of poverty, all of that are vestiges of the uniquely horrific situation that black Americans endured for beginning in 1619 and basically um, well into the 1970s, certainly the late 60s, before even legally we finally uh, gave black, pe black people um, uh, equality. But that in no way, and it would be naive to think, after all that had been put in place, all of the horrible things that had been uh, set in motion, all the bad ideas that had been inculcated into white people, black, black people, that simply, you know, over a 50 year period after nearly 500 years, uh, everything was going to be OK and everybody's equal. Everybody just needs to work hard. That's that's what's wrong with, unfortunately, most Republicans thinking about race. And it's why still most black people do not trust the Republican Party or trust Republicans. I don't think white people would either if the shoe was on the other foot. It's, it's funny that you mentioned shoes because I was about to um, reference a quote based on something you just said by Martin Luther King, where it said it's a cruel jest to tell a man to pull himself up by his bootstraps when he doesn't have any shoes. So we've got to get the shoes on people, give them preparation, give them support, and then we can expect more of a pulling yourself up by the bootstrap kind of mentality for, for everybody. And I, I actually happen to support that. But again, you have to have the boots before you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's right. There's a quote from Thurgood Marshall, which I don't know uh, exactly, but it's basically that you can't ask people to pull themselves themselves up by their bootstraps when they don't have any boots. And and that's kind of the mentality. It's 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 too much of a of a mindset. And it's not just among Republicans, but unfortunately, it it's 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 a prevailing outlook among certainly white Republicans, uh, that, uh, well, everybody's equal. The law, you know, outlaws discrimination. So if everybody works hard, they can all make it in this country. Well, listen, millions of black people have made it. Millions of black people have thrived, obviously, and, and had enormous success. That's something that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago, 70 years ago, certainly not 100 years ago, any, anything close to the scale that it has. But all that does is it tells us that the issue is not black people. The issue is the environment, the structures, the attitudes that black people are functioning in and that white people, very few of them, uh, frankly, in either party are really taking the aggressive uh, actions necessary to overcome that. It begins with children. 
I don't care how you feel about black adults. If you're uncomfortable with black people or you have some kind of negative stereotypes about black people, look at these black children, okay? Do you want them to grow up to be helping our country stay strong, to add wealth to our country? Or do you want them to become relegated to the criminal justice system, the welfare system, or both? You know, a lot of that is determined by what decisions we make and the policies that we pursue today. And white people dominate every realm of our society. By God's grace and by black people's efforts, uh, black people are, of course, represented up and down the line and in, and in, in many power centers, but certainly not anywhere close to proportionally. And so white people still dominate our society our, our business world. So it's up to us to say, you know what, this isn't acceptable. We don't have the environment where enough black people, all black people can reach their potential. Too many of them are held back by where they happen to be born, where they're forced to go to school because of housing patterns that were put in place based on deliberate segregation plans decades ago. Um, we have poor kids with uh, single mothers. That's disproportionately poor, poor black children in this country. Uh, and they, they are latchkey kids after school. They, they're not getting mentoring. Uh, they're not put in a safe, stable environment when they get out of school. And even if they're fortunate enough to be in a, in a decent school, too many are not. Uh, they don't have a good place to go. Too many, uh, too many black uh, young people do not have a good, safe, stable, nurturing place to go during the summertime when school is out. There are policies, there are programs that have succeeded in providing that. And, it, and investing in that and scaling that is much less expensive, much less socially disruptive than allowing the status quo to continue. We keep raising kids with few options, with few good examples, um, and with poor educations. And we, gee, we wonder why they don't turn out so great, a lot of them, later on. Well, guess what? You can get, if you took babies that are born in Winnetka, Illinois, or Highland Park, Texas, or the Woodlands and near Houston, or the Upper East Side of New York, uh, or in, uh, you know, Beverly Hills, if you took those babies and raised them in the circumstances that too many poor black kids are raised in, believe me, uh, they would turn out the same way. You cannot put people, you cannot put millions of people in that kind of environment and, and without taking the actions necessary to make things better and then expect them to just turn out okay. Uh, and, and we're in denial. Too many white Democratic politicians are in denial as well because they would rather focus on keeping the status quo, the, the, the current welfare state going, than really pushing innovative programs that will keep people from having to need welfare. They will keep them from even considering a life of crime an option. And, you know, in New York City and the Harlem, they have the Harlem Children's Zone, a dramatically successful combination of a program that provides a nurturing environment for kids when they're not in school. Later, they added a very successful uh, a charter school. Uh, there are other 
charter schools all over America that serve the very same uh, disproportionately low-income minority uh, student base that these public schools do in the big cities, and they're achieving dramatically better results. But we're not doing enough to push that, to scale that. We're not taking what we know is working and and pushing it out there, making it much more available to all poor black and poor minority kids. That is simply not a priority. People would rather talk about CRT and DEI well, and we're reverse actually racism. Come, <laughs> we're actually going to come to that in a second. That's the problem. We're going to we're going to specifically talk about those acronyms and I'll have a chance to, to hear your perspective on it. But um, let's imagine you're having a conversation with some pol- prominent political figures. What would you say to these people if you only had two minutes with each one? I'll, I'll give you the names one at a time. Let's start with Donald Trump. Well, you know, I think I think you gave me six people. And uh, so I, I can keep the entire thing probably to 12 minutes, but I can't promise each one will be two minutes. Some are going to okay. be really fast. <laughs> but, you know, Trump, there isn't just one thing I would say. I mean, I would say as an advisor to Trump, if I were brought in and, and I was a surrogate for Trump in 2016, I'm not one of these people that says I'm a never Trumper now. I never should have done that. I regret it. No, I, I would do it again under the same circumstances, knowing what I know then. Uh, and unfortunately, I did get to know and did deal a lot with Kellyanne Conway. I did deal a lot and, of course, kept in touch uh, frequently with Newt Gingrich, who was very close to the Trump campaign. Um, and I made a lot of recommendations. A few of them they took, and not, not as many as I would have liked. But the first thing I would say to Donald Trump is uh, you need to do more of what has worked for you that enabled you to build the great financial success that you've had and then enable you to get elected president the first time in 2016. I mean, Donald Trump, before he got into politics, was cool with black people. Uh, now, that includes all of his uh, his uh, hysterical screaming uh, newspaper ads about the Central Park Five, which, of course, th- that was entirely discredited later. But even despite that, he had black friends. He dated black women. And I know that doesn't mean you're not a racist, but I would say anybody that dates someone of another race is a little bit less racist than someone that won't even consider doing it. But my point is, Trump was not seen as any kind of racist until he made he did some things and said some very unfortunate things when he served as president. So I would just say to Trump, first of all, be what be what you are at your best. That's what I recommended. In terms of immediate actionable things, I think the first thing Donald Trump should do is right now, now that the Republican primary is basically over, announce that Tim Scott will be his running mate in 2024. Uh, It would kind of seal the deal. It would certainly completely solidify his dominance in South Carolina. Tim Scott is probably the most popular elected official there as a U.S. senator. Uh, But much more importantly, it would be anointing a new generation of leaders uh, for the Republican Party. It would be elevating somebody, a black man that has uh, come from varied trying circumstances in his childhood, uh, managed to become a successful business person, 
get elected to Congress, get appointed to the U.S. Senate by Nikki Haley, wanted to fill an unexpired term, and then to run and very successfully uh, get elected and reelected to that office. Uh, And Tim Scott has worked very closely and successfully with Donald Trump on uh, everything from opportunity zones, the tax incentives that have gotten tens of billions of dollars invested in distressed communities across the country, something that was talked about going back to Ronald Reagan, but nobody ever did anything about it. Well, Trump enacted it, and he did it with collaboration with and a push from Senator Tim Scott. Also, enduring funding for HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. That's something that Trump enacted, again, in collaboration with Tim Scott and with a push from Tim Scott. So Tim Scott has shown he can work across the aisle. Uh, he, he has a great way about him. He, he's, he's, a, he's a bedrock American. Frankly, he's probably, he probably agrees with some of the Republican doctrine on economic policy that I think is discredited. Um, and I've fortunately know some people close to him and I've kind of laid out the case uh, on some of those issues and why maybe he ought to rethink that. But the upshot is I think Trump should name Tim Scott his running mate. It will just basically uh, make clear that the primary race is over and it's time to get uh, to the general election. Uh, the second thing he needs to do, uh, the, the opposite of that, is to fire Stephen Miller, this advisor that he has. Uh, you know, I don't like to uh, cast aspersions on people unless unless they're, they're what I call serial offenders. I mean, just because I disagree with somebody or they make some statements I don't like, I don't I try not to vilify them. But. Stephen Miller is a repeat offender. He he's racist in his thinking. He's a Jewish man who who basically has has uttered things and expounded things that would be considered anti-Semitic. Um, he he has uh, he he's basically been Trump's racist in residence, and uh, he he just he, he's a he's an inflammatory. Uh, and, and just a thoroughly unpleasant person, at least every everything I've ever seen of him on television or read about him is not positive. So I think Trump should get rid of Stephen Miller. On a totally different issue, Trump should stop demonizing electric cars and electric vehicles. I simply do not understand why people think it's good for America for us to, and we're still importing millions of oil, uh, barrels of oil a day, why they think it's good uh, for us to be using a fuel that the more we use, and 60% of the oil we e- either produce or import goes to gasoline, every time we consume oil, it raises the price around the world for oil, and that enriches Vladimir Putin, it enriches Iran, it enriches rogue members of the House of Saud uh, in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia that fund terrorists. And of course, Iran is a number one state sponsor of terror in the world. Um, It gives more money to the illegitimate, still illegitimate regime in Venezuela and props them up. I don't understand why people think that's a good idea. Yes, you know, we need more charging stations for electric vehicles. Yes, the range needs to be improved. Well, Take a look at the vehicles that are coming out. They're 350, 400, even 500 miles of range. Finally, and, and uh, inexcusably belatedly, 
is built out of charger stations that is funded uh, partly by the federal government under Biden's infrastructure bill is finally getting underway. We're going to have a lot more charging stations. People forget that when Henry Ford first began mass producing Model T's in 1911, it took almost a decade for gasoline to be universally available. And, and it, it was at least a decade until we had anything resembling the gasoline infrastructure that we have today. So the fact that we have some growing pains and that there aren't immediately uh, fast charging stations on every corner and that the first electric cars that come out uh, don't all have 300 miles of range on them, it uh, doesn't mean it's a discredited technology. It doesn't mean it's something that should be torn down. More American cars mean less oil consumption, less profits for Putin and for Iran, and it means more American jobs because those American vehicles, there are more of them are made in the United States and their components are made in the United States than gasoline vehicles taken as a whole. So, and then on top of that, you have the environmental benefits and however you feel about climate change, nobody will argue that exhaust fumes from gasoline cars pose a health risk to people on Earth. Even if there was no climate change as a result of CO2 emissions, we want those tailpipe emissions reduced. Electric cars, of course, do that because anything that can generate electricity can fuel an electric car. There's only one way to get gasoline for a car, and that's from oil. So he needs to stop demonizing electric vehicles getting back to the racial issue Trump has got to to move away from instead of continuing the failed uh, DeSantis uh, campaign against DEI, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion and allegations that if we teach the truth about our racial history, it's it's CRT and indoctrination of white people. He's got to get off that totally. He needs to keep it real on race. And Trump is uniquely equipped to do that with his base. If he does it his way and articulates it authentically, but in the Trump way, most of his base, the overwhelming majority, will rethink their attitudes on race and it will be much better for everybody. Finally, I would tell Trump, you've got to stop being soft on Ukraine and soft on Putin. Um we have got to vanquish Putin in Ukraine. It, it is just insane to me that people don't realize very smart people uh, that are in the policy realm do not and in the political realm do not realize that if we allow Putin to even make any kind of significant territorial gains in Ukraine, it will put all of NATO at risk. It will also send a signal to Xi in China, uh, to Iran, that the U.S. and the and our allies and friends uh, will not do what it takes to counter aggression and to counter imperialism. Uh, we have got to stop Putin now. We have got to keep NATO from being even more immediately threatened than it is. We have got to send a signal to autocrats and to malevolent forces around the world that if you mess with the United States and our allies, there's going to be hell to pay. You will not be able to do it with impunity. So Trump has got to stop acting. He's gotten wishy-washy on Ukraine. He was the first president to send lethal aid uh, to the Ukrainians just to try to beat back the Russians uh, during uh, his presidency. And yet now uh, Trump is, you know, wishy-washy and 
he's kind of uh, empowering Republicans to say, well, we should be spending money on our border in the United States, not spending it in Ukraine, as if one had anything to do with the other. We need to do, we must do both. It's a ridiculous apples and oranges argument to bring that up. Yeah, we need to secure the border and do a lot of other things, which we can talk about at the border. But that has nothing to do with Ukraine. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to stop Putin and Ukraine now, to protect Ukraine now. And they're the ones that are shedding blood, not us, uh, to to you know, keep that effort going now and to ensure that Putin does not advance in Ukraine. It's a lot cheaper to do that than to deal with the consequences if he's able to uh, inc- make significant gains in Ukraine. And next he'll be looking at the Baltic states uh, and other NATO countries, Poland, Hungary. Uh, you know, we just have to stop that. And Trump has got to be absolutely ironclad on that. Uh, and, and quit being wishy-washy on that and quit um, right. basically giving comfort to Putin uh, instead of fits to Putin, which is what any American president should be doing when Putin is engaged in these kind of uh, nefarious, evil, bloodthirsty actions. Okay, so your next brief conversation is with Joe Biden. What would you say to Joe <laughs> Biden? Well, first I'd say... You, you've done or you've at least presided over a really excellent economy in terms of job growth. He's added 14, 15 million jobs or while he's been president, been president, 14, 15 million jobs. Uh, our unemployment rate is almost at pre-pandemic levels. It's still very low by historic standards. And now inflation has collapsed. It spiked right after the pandemic. So I would compliment him on the economy. But I would say, Mr. President, I think the time has come for you to step aside. Uh, I think I, I think he's making the Democrats very vulnerable uh, in the 24 election, not just at the presidential level, but of course, on the down ballot races. And a lot of Democrats are talking about that. And it's completely rational that they do. So I would tell, I would say, Mr. President, I strongly encourage you to step aside, to try leading up to that, to persuade and get your friends to persuade and get your former boss, President Barack Obama, to persuade Michelle Obama uh, to pick up the baton, to take the baton from you uh, and to push Michelle Obama to be the, the nominee in 2024. Um I frankly think it's going to take Michelle Obama. I cannot think of another Democrat, with all due respect to Kamala Harris, many other people in the party, whether I agree with them or not, I'll always give somebody their due if I think they're politically viable. I don't see anybody that is clearly going to beat Donald Trump other than Michelle Obama. And I and I think if I'm a Democrat, frankly, even if I'm an American and I just want the best candidates up there, the best options for voters, uh, I would encourage President Biden to step aside and to do everything he can to get Michelle Obama to enter the political fray and to uh, to be anointed the Democratic nominee for 24. OK, well, your next conversation is with Nikki Haley. What would you say to Miss Haley? 
Well, first, I'd say I, I hope you've brushed up on your Civil War history and your uh, uh, your knowledge about American racial reality and you know, what I alluded to at great length earlier in this podcast about uh, what what's really happened with black America, 250 years of slavery, 100 years of wanton terrorism, uh, incessant humiliation, unceasing marginalization. Um, so I would say, I hope you've brushed up on that. But the second thing I'd say is, on Ukraine, you're dead right. You're probably the only Republican candidate who has unabashedly told the truth about why we have to stand with Ukraine and why we have to do everything we can and provide all we can that's necessary for them to vanquish Putin. But then I would say, if I were you, I would pull out of the race now and start building for 2028. Uh, this is not your year. It's You're not going to do well in your own home state of South Carolina, which is the ultimate humiliation. Melvin, I worked on two presidential campaigns that ended in South Carolina. One was John Connolly's in 1980. Believe it or not, he was considered for a long time the number one threat to Ronald Reagan. And he did very poorly in the early primaries. We went to South Carolina. We pushed very hard. I worked very hard. I did TV commercials, radio commercials. I was just a kid, but we and he spent a lot of money there. He came in second. He came in second in South Carolina to Reagan, but it was not good enough. And and he had to bow out in South Carolina in March of 1980. And then what do you know, in 2016, I was working with Jeb Bush, and Jeb Bush also had a disappointing showing in Iowa and New Hampshire, and he bet everything on South Carolina. Part of what we were hoping for was an endorsement from then-Governor Nikki Haley, which we didn't get. She didn't endorse anybody, so that was a, a gut punch. Uh, but when we did not do nearly as well as we needed to do in South Carolina, there it was, March of 2016, uh, and, you know, within a few miles of where I was way back in 1980 when Connolly pulled out, uh, Jeb Bush, who's, who's a great man and was a great governor of Florida, he pulled out of the race. I would hate to see that happen to Nikki Haley because at least with Connolly and Jeb Bush, uh, South Carolina was not their home state. It is her home state. And if she's going to continue in the political realm, I just don't see how it helps her to, to, to try to simply diminish Trump's winning margin in South Carolina, spend a whole lot of donors money for, for naught. Uh, I think she would do much better to simply uh, call it a day when it comes to this presidential race. And if she wants to continue in politics, she's very talented, uh, focus on 2028. Uh, but um, I'd say, please get out of the race. It's, for, it's best for you, for the party, and for the country. Okay. So your next conversation is with a small group. It's a, the left-wing flank of the Democratic Party, which calls itself the squad. What would you say to them? Well, I would say it's uh, AOC, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, Annie Presley, Rashida Tlaib, uh, the four members of the squad, I would say I would importune them to become the the uh, the group, the squad that is for for solutions instead of, you know, constantly emanating screeds, um, be the solution squad. And what I what I mean by that is 
many of the issues that they bring up, like we don't, not everybody, even with Obamacare, too many people still don't have good health insurance in this country. Uh, you know, you can argue about climate change. At, at, at the very least, you can say there are smart, well-meaning people who really do believe we're facing a climate crisis, even if, if that's discredited, even if that's not completely true, if it's exaggerated. One thing we do know is that continuing to rely on oil as our main source of transportation fuel, as I said earlier, is very bad for the United States because it props up the world oil price and it enriches some of the most malevolent forces on this planet, which would be Putin's Russia, Iran, the number one state sponsor of terror, uh, Venezuela, which is certainly not as much of a military threat, but it's it's a, a huge country, a once rich country that is continuing to bleed uh, the, the nation and its people because it has oil. So even if we didn't have a climate crisis, we have got to to deal with that. So we, we can find common ground. And what the hell is wrong with renewable energy? If we can if we can use American technology to continue to make solar power more and more cost effective as an energy source, and it's it's become dramatically cheaper over the past. 10 to 20 years. What is wrong with using God's sunlight as our primary source of power? I don't get why a Christian conservative thinks that a, 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 an energy infrastructure based on God's sunlight uh, is somehow uh, heretical or somehow un-American or somehow socialistic. But what I would say to the squad is, we can find common ground on the problems you're isolating. We can find common ground on the people that need to be helped. We can find common ground on the ridiculous and, and appalling economic disparities in this country. But to get to where you want to go, I don't believe you can get where you want to go from here. You can't get there from here. Instead of demonizing billionaires with a broad brush, you know, a lot of those billionaires, uh, some of them may be rapacious and greedy, but a lot of them are, are pretty damn smart and talented. You know, uh, AOC once said, you don't make a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars. Well, there could be some truth to that, to that, but all I can say is a lot of these individuals are a hell of a lot smarter about it taking it uh, than the average person, and they have good ideas, and we should be tapping their capabilities and encouraging them to help solve our problems, not just uh, treating them like outcasts because they happen to be very wealthy. One reason they're very wealthy is because of policies that they had nothing to do with. I mean, yeah, a lot of them have lobbyists, but the policies that allowed excessive corporate uh, concentration in our country, consolidation, uh, the, the, the tax program we have, uh, many other things. Uh, the fact that we haven't done enough to stimulate small business creation, though under Biden, ironically, that's turning around. We're having a resurgence of, of business startups. But, you know, a lot of these billionaires uh, became billionaires because of policies that have been longstanding in this country. And, and people give lip service to, you know, wanting to help lower income people, but they don't. So again, I would tell the squad, be the solution squad, not the screed squad. And, and, and embrace 
you know, the good parts of our system, which empower people, give people uh, autonomy, give people independence when they can become entrepreneurs or even get a good job with stability. And yeah, let's work on making sure everybody has private health insurance in this country, not Medicaid, Medicare for all, but good private insurance for all. Uh, you know, let's let's work on policies that will uh, provide more of a financial underpinning, more of a uh, of a foundation for the least fortunate among us, and frankly, for a good chunk of our middle class. And if that takes uh, a less generous tax policy for the wealthiest, that's a very rational decision. But we don't have to go around saying how terrible billionaires are in order to affect those policies. That's a very Republican way of thinking. That's a very uh, founding fathers way of thinking. Our founding fathers did not, even though a lot of them were elites and George Washington supposedly was the richest man in America by marriage, uh, they did not build this country to have an aristocracy like they escaped from and, and wanted to build a new from uh, in, in uh, what was then England. Uh, they, you know, they wanted uh, masses of Americans to, to live well and, and to, if not be rich, at least be prosperous and successful. Uh, they, they did not, corporations as we know them, did not even exist at our nation's founding. Okay, corporations didn't become a, a, a major form of organization for large businesses until well into the Industrial Revolution, well into the 19th century. So we, we, we shouldn't be acting like the founding fathers uh, by whole hog, the Wall Street agenda, the, the business behemoth agenda. I'm very pro-business. I am not pro-business behemoth. And some of say, I mean, look at what's happened with Boeing. Forgive me for being discursive. But if you want to know what happened that caused the 737 MAX airplane to be a catastrophe, to be a, 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 a basically a death trap in many cases, a dangerous uh, airplane, look no further than the fact that Boeing has no United States competition in civil aviation. And why is that? Because of government policies, largely in the defense arena, that stood by and actually encouraged the destruction of McDonnell Douglas aircraft, uh, which was a major competitor to, uh, to Boeing in civil aviation. Now, the only competitor to Boeing and civil aviation, certainly large airplanes and, and large-scale production of passenger jets, is uh, EAD, uh, Airbus, in Europe. And of course, we want Americans making airplanes. We want Boeing, since that's the only game in town right now in our country. We want them making those airplanes. But it's a lack of competition that allowed that sloppiness, that, that abhorrent uh, lack of quality control at Boeing. It, believe me, if they had been competing robustly with another major company for big jetliner contracts, I guarantee you they would have been more careful and we, would, we wouldn't have this, this, uh, this disaster, 737 MAX, uh, 
in the air right now. It's not in the air. Actually, they're grounding it. But that that would never have that, a plane like that never would have even made it uh, off the assembly line if if we had competition. So I would say let's join together. Let's let's start finding commonality on the problems. Republicans tend to deny these problems exist. Democrats say the only way to solve the problems is bigger government and tearing down business and uh, taking. Uh, more money from wealthy people, which we probably should do to some extent, but let's do it rationally. Uh, so that's what I would say to the squad. I probably would okay. say it quicker than that, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're we're starting to run out of time here. So let's let's go quickly through the last couple of, of people I've got on the list. Um, Turning Point USA President Charlie Kirk. What would you say to Mr. Kirk? Uh, I know Charlie. Um, we we had some very good uh, communications two or three years ago. He he loved my stance on trade and how I articulated why we needed a very different trade policy than we've had for the, for the prior decades. Uh, we even even talked about he even had a donor that wanted to endow me and bring me into his organization. Uh, and so we talked about a lot of things. He had me come to his women's conference in Dallas where I met him and we hung out and, and talked a lot and I met some other great people there. Uh, but the problem with, with Charlie is he is embracing the Stephen Miller racist agenda. And it is it is sad to see because Charlie is a smart guy. He, he's built a, a hell of an operation there at Turning Point. And to hear him embrace racial idiocy and frankly, racial evil and to say things like, if I saw a black pilot, speaking of airplanes, if I saw a black pilot when I got on an airplane, I'd be concerned if he was qualified to, to, to allow that to even cross your lips or to, to, be, uh, to be entered into, a, into an ex post is disgusting. And unfortunately, a lot of young people are going to take up that way of thinking. A lot of them already have it because, you know, his organization concentrates on college campuses. So it's particularly evil what Charlie is is uh, taking part in in terms of his racial rhetoric. He has got to make a U-turn on that. And that's, that's all I would need to say to Charlie because that's the number one thing. He has got to move away from that horrific. And frankly, and I don't use this term lightly, but racist mantra that he's uttering and he in so doing he is empowering he is miseducating young people that are looking for guidance and need guidance as they uh, move into the age where they can be politically active and they can start voting and running for office it's a horrible disservice to them and of course to black people and other minorities in our country so i'd say charlie for god's sake stop it stop it Okay, and the last person on our list is Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. What would you say to Mr. Powell? Well, I'd say thank God yeah, you, you belatedly stopped choking our economy. Uh, you know, the interest rate increase, we're fortunate then when they started raising interest rates, which Ch Jerome Powell uh, pushed, and I'll get into that in a moment how that works, but uh, even though interest rates are five, five and a half percent right now. And that's not terribly high by historic standards, but they started at near zero. So, you know, it's an almost an infinite number when you're going <laughs> something times zero to get to five and a half percent. It was a dramatic 
increase it, uh, in terms of proportion and scale of interest rates over such a short period of time. So the first thing I say to Jerome Powell is, thank God you've stopped choking the economy. You need to actively push to make sure the Federal Reserve can never make that mistake again. Uh, I read Jerome Powell and other Fed people say just the other day, well, you know what? It turns out the reason we had that inflation after the pandemic is we had a supply chain problem. That was it. It wasn't too much money. It wasn't low interest rates. I mean, I wrote an article about that. You can find a link to my ex uh, bio. I wrote an article in The Hill about that uh, a year and a half ago, that this inflation would not continue, that it's 100% due to supply chain uh, interruptions that were caused by the pandemic, by reduced oil production in the United States, which was caused by the pandemic. And they miscalculated. They didn't realize the economy would snap back as quickly as it did. So we had oil and gasoline shortages. And then on top of that, Ukraine, which that the war in Ukraine led to greatly diminished exports from Ukraine uh, of grain. And of course, Russian oil was basically taken off the market uh, in the OECD nations. They all boycotted Russia eventually on oil. So that constricted oil supplies around the world and raised the price of oil. So the point is, our problem with inflation is not caused by too much money. As I said, Reagan tripled the national debt and that ushered in 30 plus years of very low. Many times they were afraid too low inflation. Uh, we had a very accommodative Federal Reserve in the 1950s and the 1960s. Inflation was 2%. It was very low. It didn't take off until the early 1970s when OPEC consolidated and they dramatically increased the price of oil. We're talking more than 10 times from 1970 to, or so to 1981. Oil went up more than 10 times, not double, not triple, 10 times. Okay. Wow. It's amazing we didn't have even more inflation. It was all driven by oil and some bad government policies that over-regulated industry uh, like trucking and other airlines and uh, kept prices artificially high. But it was not because we had low interest rates in the 1960s. That's utterly ridiculous. And so I would tell him to abandon that totally, that failed economic doctrine. And I would specifically say, Mr. Powell, I ask that you push the Congress to formally uh, enact into law that the president has the right to dismiss any member of the Federal Reserve, the seven members of the Board of Governors, um, all of the uh, Fed bank uh, presidents, all of the top officials that are key decision makers in the Federal Reserve should serve at the pleasure of the president, as do cabinet officials and sub-cabinet officials that have significant uh, power. That is what Article 2 specifies in our Constitution. It is ridiculous that nobody points out that the Fed, seven boards, members of the Board of Governors, that are unelected, yes, they're appointed by the president, but unelected and considered unfireable, though, again, according to Article 2, the president should be able to fire them and probably could if it came to a court test. But they have more power. They can exercise more influence in a secret room in the Federal Reserve Building than any cabinet official, other than or even the president, other than declaring war. There are very few things the federal government can do with as much impact and unfortunately too often horribly negative impact 
as the Federal Reserve. And yet people look around and go, oh, the Federal Reserve, it's got to be independent. And I'm like, Are you kidding? What, do we want the Defense Department to be independent? You know, I mean, no, we sure don't. We want the president accountable for what the Defense Department does. We want the State Department to be independent. No, uh, we want the president to be accountable uh, for what how diplomacy is conducted and how we deal with other countries. And the, the greatest example and actually the worst example is the way to put it of socialism we have in this country is our Federal Reserve System, where you basically have seven people unelected, unfireable. They can literally determine what you and I pay for mortgages, what we pay for our car loan, whether businesses have the capital to expand and to hire, or whether they have to cut back and fire people, cut hours. That We don't give any seven people in this country that much power. The president himself or herself does not have that much power. We have got to dramatically circumscribe the power of the Federal Reserve to, to raise interest rates in a panic they should be able to lower rates, even go negative when we have a contraction or a financial panic. Uh, that's worked out very well. When they've lowered rates, to, when they did that after the financial crash in 2008, 2009, when they did it at the onset of the pandemic in 2020, it saved us. We, we, we had a record uh, uh, rescue, a record turnaround from the horrific but quick depression that we have when the pandemic set in in this country. And that was largely because the Fed reversed course, dramatically lowered rates, flooded the banking system with money, uh, uh, which raised confidence within the banks. It gave them the capacity to lend more. They don't actually directly lend that money, but it gives them the capacity to lend more uh, when, when they want to do that. Uh, so lowering rates has been great. They have a great track record lowering rates and increasing the availability of money in the economy. That, for the most part, has worked fantastic. But when they've raised rates, every time the Federal Reserve has raised rates for a sustained period of time, we have had a recession. And people go, oh, well, a recession, that's what you need to get rid of inflation. Hey, wait a minute. If you lost a job, if your spouse lost a job, if a loved one lost a job, if a child lost a job, if your business failed because of one of those nice cleansing recessions, you might have a different attitude. If you were a waiter, a service worker, and your hours get cut or your tip income goes to the floor because we're in hard times because of a Federal Reserve induced recession, you might feel a little differently about that. And again, there is no evidence that low interest rates that frankly government spending government debt there's no causation between any of those and inflation every major inflationary episode we've had in our history has been caused by wartime shortages of materials and labor obviously when a lot of men were sent overseas or oil shocks, and the worst, of course, being in the 1970s and early 80s when OPEC consolidated, and they also, we had two major, basically, boycotts uh, where we literally couldn't even get oil from the Middle East in the 70s and, and, and uh, late 70s and in the early 80s. That's where all the inflation has come from. It has never happened because we're, our economy was booming. It has never happened because interest rates were low. 
if, if anything, those were coincidences. Uh, so I would tell him to abandon that doctrine that we've got to, that he needs to lead the fight to dramatically overhaul the Fed and our monetary paradigm and enable the president to have the same ability to uh, make changes at the Fed that the president has with every cabinet level department and at the sub cabinet level and within our military. Uh, because again, the Federal Reserve literally has more power than probably any uh, entity within our federal government other than the U.S. military when we declare war. There's not much more you can do that will affect the economy and, and how the average American lives than what the Federal Reserve does. And yet they are insulated from political accountability. They meet in secret. Uh, even you may not like every, you know, regulation that's passed by, let's say, uh, appointees in the Biden administration. But, you know, there have to be public comments before regulations can be enacted. The Congress has the right to review and kill regulations, which they really started doing under Trump, had not been done a lot before that. But Congress can kill regulations. None of those safety valves, none of those uh, speed bumps exist for Federal Reserve policy. It's what the Federal Reserve chairman who lords over the Fed, like he's some kind of uh, money god, uh, lords over the Fed, and they pretty much do. They vote in lockstep. There's almost, there's, I can't even remember, I think it's been a decade or two since any member of the Board of Governors voted in dissent. They vote in, you, with unanimity and lockstep and basically whatever the Fed chairman tells them to do. If you call that democracy, when these people literally control what everybody pays for their mortgages, their car notes, whether businesses succeed or fail, whether people are hired or fired all over our $25 trillion economy. If you think that's American, if you think that's that's a free market system, uh, <clears throat> please read a little bit, think a little bit and sleep on it. All right. That that does definitely give me a lot to think about. But unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time for this episode. So um, we're going to have to cut it short. I still have a lot of questions I could ask you, and, and maybe we'll have to have you back on another time to, to answer some more questions, if you don't mind. That. I probably won't have anything to say. I'll be tongue-tied <laughs> like I was this time. All right. So Lee Speakerman has been our guest today. Lee, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate having you on. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you very much for having me. Having me. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. Thank you for being here. So that's it for today's episode of Stories from Real Life. Join us again next time, next Tuesday in particular, for another storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.